Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia and recognize their continuing connection to land, waters, and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Welcome back to This Song Is Yours, a music podcast where we talk to a guest each week, talk about their life and creative endeavours, and talk to them about some of the music they love. I'm your host, Simon Fink, and welcome to episode two. Today's guest is James Arneman from country folk duo Small Town Romance. This show works by chatting to our guests about music, but also getting them to make you a playlist. We upload it to Spotify for you to listen to, and you can find the link to our Spotify in the show notes. Our conversation today discusses Slim and I, a documentary on the life of Joy McKean and Slim Dusty. James and I also discuss Springsteen and Isolation Records. Here we go. Our guest today is one half of Australian country duo Small Town Romance. The band recently contributed a new song to the documentary Slim and I, which tells the beautiful story of partnership between Joy McKean and her husband, Slim Dusty. Joy and Slim also happen to be the grandparents of our guest today. Please welcome to the show, James Arneman. G'day, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Now, as mentioned in the intro, you come from what I would refer to as the royal family of country music in Australia. What was it like growing up in such a musically inclined family? Well, it was, it was very exciting. It was fun. Um, there was always music around and there was lots of travelling every... Um, uh, you know, I have some wonderful memories uh, just being out on tour from a very young age and that rhythm of um, of touring that my grandparents Slim and Joy had, um, that was the way they lived. They were kind of nomadic and you'd, you'd, you'd travel, get to a small town, set up in the hall, play the show, speak to the people, you know, uh, have a bit of a wind down, go to bed, do it all again, and that sort of rhythm of life definitely imprinted it, imprinted on me uh, at a young age, and I loved it. And it was so exciting. Every day was sort of leading up towards this sort of crescendo and this climax, which was the concert. So that was a lot of fun. That was probably one of my big memories of of growing up in in um, in my family, and then the music itself, um, as well. Just the just the the idea of songwriting and um, songwriting being a serious craft, I think, as a young child, I, I, I became aware of that kind of early on um, about crafting songs and, um, you know, what made a good song. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, it was, it was a great way to grow up. Um, absolutely. What are some of the earlier memories that you have with your grandfather? Oh, uh, so many. I think some of my favourites. I think uh, when we were when we'd be on tour, Slim, you know, he he'd been, you know, by the time I came along, I was born in 1985. At that point, he'd been had a recording career that had lasted over 40 years. At that point, and he was still going strong. Uh, and so 
watching him sort of backstage, just in his dressing room before we'd hit the stage, before he'd hit the stage each night, watching him sort of pump himself up and just see the absolute excitement and um, uh, just the, the pure joy in what he did and how excited he got before every every gig. And he'd, he'd warm up I and mean, he'd play a couple of songs to warm up with his guitar in his dressing room and he'd stride around and sort of stretch. I, I, I loved just sitting there in the dressing room watching him get ready to go on. Uh, I just remember um, it just felt very intimate. You know, he'd be, he'd be warming up and singing a couple of songs and you were, the, you were the only audience there and knowing that you were kind of getting a preview of the energy that he was about to sort of unleash on, you know, a crowd of, you know, a thousand or more people. Um, very special sort of moments like that. And I think, yeah, just generally the um, that sort of absolute... Um, uh, enthusiasm. Uh, it was very infectious um, coming from my grandparents, both Slim and Joy. Uh, even like around the dinner table, you know, Slim would be, you know, r- making up rhymes. At the dinner table, he was very playful with words and then the way he would bounce off Joy and Joy would um, be the more pragmatic sort of foil that would, um, you know, kind of steer him towards, you know, um, harnessing that energy, I guess, watching that happen in all the sort of family settings, you know, he'd be um, coming up with something on the spot kind of as a bit of a throwaway line and you'd be like, well, you should write that down or re- record that. And and just watching them, the, their their energies and the way they bounced off each other and complimented each other, that was, yeah, that's wonderful memories. With both Joy and Slim being quite musical along with your mother, Anne, who we'll, um, we'll talk about a bit later, was there ever a point where you thought maybe music isn't for me or, or maybe I'll be a doctor or an architect? I think, I mean, well, the last sort of 15 years of my life I've been working in film, so that's kind of been my career and music has been, I mean, I've always wanted to play music and there was no doubt that I'd always be playing music in some way. Um, but there was never any pressure to to do, to, you know, to follow in the footsteps or anything. And in some ways that was such an abstract idea to me anyway uh, because, you know, Slim and Joy's career, it's such a specific uh, incredibly specific um, sort of phenomenon that took place, you know, over the course of 50 years, they built this sort of grassroots following um, in Australia by going and playing shows in small towns and and collecting songs and uh, from people that they met and collecting bits of verse and turning them into songs and also writing. Um, and they just it was just this sort of phenomenon that 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 built and built over 50 years. So it was this huge huge um, uh, legacy, I guess, that they, they built in this huge catalogue of music that it's kind of overwhelming when you contemplate it. So the idea of kind of following on from that is a bit, was always a bit abstract to me. And um, I think growing up, you know, I grew up, I didn't grow up in the country. I grew up in suburban Sydney. So the idea of becoming a country singer, even though I was related to Slim Dusty and, and Joe McKean, it, becoming a country singer as a suburban kid in the nineties, like it was, yeah, it was always a bit of a strange disjunct there for me, I think. So, um, I was always, yeah, I was always going to have music in my life, but, um, to be honest, the last, the, the most recent single that, that I've just put out, um, uh, with the group Small Town Romance, which is myself and my wife, Flora, that is the closest thing to following in the footsteps I've ever done, I think. And probably the first time I've ever done it because everything I've done musically previous to that is, is quite separate, I think. And, and it's, it, it's its own, it's its own sort of musical path, I guess. 
just before you mentioned that you've been working in film for the last number of years, along with the band contributing to the film's soundtrack, you were also involved in the making of the film, like going through the archives and, and searching for old notes and footage. How did the project actually come about? The, the project was something that was sort of gestating for a long time uh, because when I started working in film, I finished uni, finished film school, started working, and I was working in doco a lot, doing a lot of editing of docos. And so immediately I knew in the back of my head, well, I've got this access and there's this amazing story and I'd love to do a definitive definitive sort of doco about some enjoy. Um, but the, the journey to getting that off the ground was, uh, it took a little while. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that journey basically is that And originally there's been films and, and um, TV sort of pieces, you know, in the dozens about Slim and Joy. So it had been done and there was a generation of Australians that really did, was familiar with Slim and Joy's story. So for me, it was a, a question of why do we need to tell this story again and what makes it have contemporary relevance and how can we introduce a whole new audience to this music and this this story and so it took a while to sort of find a way to do that initially um the 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 point where it clicked for me was when um my grandmother joy wrote her autobiography and that was about five or six years ago i think uh so yeah slim and joy they're like old school showbiz couple and you know in the 50s and 60s in showbiz you had like your public persona very squeaky clean kind of all smiles and then your private life was your private life especially in country music in australia it's very kind of conservative um values i guess you'd say so even when i started researching this you know and and interviewing my grandmother and saying i'd like to make a film about your life with slim can we you know sit down and do some research interviews I felt even as a grandson, I was kind of getting the the party line from from Joy uh, because they'd done a million interviews before they trot out the sort of same dozen or so stories. And, you know, you feel like when you've been telling a story over and over to interviewees and to the public for 40 years, you kind of forget what the original bit of truth was underneath it all and you've kind of just built this sort of public persona. So I wanted to sort of break that down and get back to, to kind of dig a bit deeper and when joy decided to write her autobiography she immediately was just like going straight back to sort of primary archives like her diaries ringing up her friends uh, going through old ephemera and immediately that sort of reactivated a whole lot of old memory pathways for her and she sent me a few drafts of the opening chapters to the book and immediately i just knew well this is it this is you know it's been a bit of a wait, but this is the way into this story because telling the story of their partnership through Joy's perspective and using this sort of fresh tag that Joy has from revisiting all of this, that's the way in. But, of course, you know, making a film about Slim, um, you've obviously got to get the record company on side and it's a huge amount of intellectual property there that, that's very valuable to them. So they want to kind of, you know, have you know, be involved in the process and approve of the way you're doing it. And um, every time we tried to pitch it, um, people generally wanted Slim to be the focus of the film. Uh, So it was hard to get that idea of joy being kind of the centrepiece of the film um, into the pitch and and for it to stick through various iterations. And um, so we, we... we found it difficult to fund the film with Joy as the central figure because Slim was so much more recognisable. People wanted that um, in terms of the producers and the record company wanted that. But when you actually pitch that to funding bodies and financing people, they said, well, 
what's new about this? We know Slim's story. So it was kind of a bit of a circle we went through. But then kind of attitudes changed um, almost, you know, overnight it felt like in an approach to telling women's stories in film and in, in all f- walks of life um, in around, you know, 2016, I guess it was. And from there, immediately that pitch became much more um, sellable and we were able to make the film on the scale we wanted to make it with a big distributor. We were able to get a big director in, Creve Stenders, to come and direct the film. And so I had this all this research done. I had all the archival material ready to go. I had all the interviewees that are prepped. We were just ready to run with it. So the moment that that sort of the timing became right, we had everything ready to go, and we just pushed pushed on through and and made the film. And we're you know really happy with with uh, with what we made. That's that's beautiful. With the time that we're currently living in, people do want to hear different stories. The narrative used to be behind every great man is a great woman, but I think that in twenty twenty. We're wanting stories from these different perspectives. The movie itself does focus on the partnership of Joy and Slim and them working side by side and both of them playing to their own strengths. Do you think that this is because of the time that we're in that it allowed for this perspective to be told? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like even as, uh, you know, recently as 2012, 2013, when we were pitching this, there wasn't that interest in telling the story this way. And, and, then suddenly it happened very quickly. So there was this um, interest in, it's not necessarily revisionist history in any real way. It's just looking at this story through a different lens and the lens of joy. And, you you know, the, the phenomenon of Slim Dusty is just inconceivable without joy. Um, and that's the sort of, you know, not and that's not to diminish any of Slim's achievements. He was... Um, his ability to, you know, his charisma, his his strength of performance, his his vocal abilities, his writing abilities, you know, he was the the, the public facing part of the partnership. But you know, the managing, the 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 songwriting, um, the tour booking, the you know, keeping the family together through all thick and thin, the business management that was all joy, very much. So that's what we wanted to to to, to show in this film that you know. At its core, it was a real family story of just how a family was able to kind of stay together amidst all the ups and downs of of a career in music. And and um, the backdrop was 50 years of Australian history that they were writing songs about at the same time. And through that 50 years of history, you see the songs are reflecting the values of a changing Australia. And you see a sort of a changing rural Australia as this family changes. When you were doing some of the research for the film, you came across some of the earlier lyrics that then became the song that Small Town Romance contributed to the film called I Don't Believe You. When you stumble across something like that, how does your brain recognise that this could be a song? And then I guess how do you approach one of Australia's most loved country singers and say, let's co-write or, or let's finish this song together? Yeah, uh, I guess on its surface it's it's uh, pure nepotism. Uh, but... <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, look, it was just it was just a product of what we were doing with the film was taking quite a candid approach to retelling their story. And when I came across some demos on a tape that Joy had done around the time Slim passed away, uh, this song, this short little demo that she'd done, it was like, you know, half a song. Uh, it just struck me that it was incredibly candid, incredibly raw for Joy. Joy is a songwriter that has written for 
you know, predominantly she wrote for Slim. She wrote for Slim's voice. She wrote in his character. Um, she knew what what worked for him. But she also wrote for herself and she wrote songs over the years about, you know, various things. But this was this song in particular that I found was, it, it was a new sort of, it was new territory. I'd never heard a song this honest and this raw from Joy before. And it just fitted perfectly with what was going on in the film um, and the sort of confessional but also quite um, measured um, and beautiful sort of uh, delivery that she has in the film when she's talking about her life. So it made sense. I, initially the idea was did she want to finish writing it and then we could think about how to in- incorporate it into the film. But Joy uh, was the one that threw it out there and said, look, I, you know, this is one where I sort of hit a wall with this. Would you like to, you know, try um, finishing it off for me? And for Small Town Romance, you know, Flora and I, our band, we we kind of, uh, it wasn't necessarily in our wheelhouse, I think, because Joy's got a very classic 1950s style of songwriting, you know. She kind of, her songwriting DNA kind of traces back to when she was a teenager and, and uh, country music was in its halcyon days and it's this classic sort of country, um, almost kind of old-timey, um, uh, sensibility to her melodies. So I tasked my wife Flora with uh, with the co-write because her sensibility matched it a lot better than mine and she did all the work, to be honest. they She started an email chain back and forth with Joy and sent demos back and forth. And, I mean, Joy doesn't co-write, full stop. She just never does. Anything that anything that says it's a co-write in her catalogue between her and Slim, usually it's one one of them or the other that's written it and they just said it was a co-write. But she just doesn't co-write. And I can understand why now because she's got very specific ideas about melody in particular uh, that she's not willing to <laughs> not willing to compromise on. And so writing this was was it was a challenge because she had really specific ideas. And you know, we we are less kind of country music purists, I guess you'd say. Flora and I, it's kind of a pretty broad church, the sorts of influences we pull in. But um, this song. I think she wanted to keep it pretty close to that initial vision she had. So Flora was great. She kind of just did a bit of arranging and nips and tucks and she came up with some beautiful lines that worked perfectly side by side with Joy's lines. And I think the most memorable thing was that we got an email back from her at one point about the outro of the song and we were trying a few different things and we couldn't figure out a way to end it. And Joy said, "It, it needs to be angrier needs to be really angry. And that was kind of a bit of an affront where like we thought it was this nice sort of plotty, you know, and, we, you know, it is, it's, it's a, it's got a, it, we wanted it to, to, to be a pretty song, but um, she wanted that, that message, that lyric at the end to be quite, quite angry, I think, and quite unrelenting. And that was, you know, that was a challenge, but Flora came up with those final lines and I think, you know, and to our, you know, luckily, you know, Joy loved it. She said, that's perfect. I love it. That was the one thing that she really, really kind of came back with a huge amount of enthusiasm and that was the ending that, that, that Flora came up with. So um, that's how it happened. It was kind of a back and forth over a number of months and then we got the approval from Joy and um, we went to record it just before the pandemic hit. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In the email chain you mentioned, I did hear that Joy, uh, she, she didn't pull any punches. Can you explain to us the faux yodel? Oh, yes. Uh, so Joy was in a sister act, her sister Heather. Um, they sang together as teenagers in Sydney and they were called the Yodeling McKean Sisters. So this is in like the heyday of yodeling when yodeling was like a key part of country music. And they used to yodel in harmony and it's like vocal acrobatics essentially, but it was it was very, very popular at the time. And they were one of the best in Australia at it. And so... In recent, in more recent times, there's a there's the odd bit of yodeling that happens in country music. You know, there's like and and I think Flora and I have come to call it kind of faux yodeling. You know, like Gillian Welsh kind of, you know, mid tempo sort of. Um, you know, it's not a real commitment to the to the. You know, it's not like you know Swiss Alpine yodeling. It's like it's it's pretty lax. So we we put a bit of a faux yodel in in the turnaround to this song just because we in the demo we didn't have um, you know a color instrument at hand. So we said, oh, let's just do a yodel. But we got like an email back about five minutes later saying, what's all this faux yodeling about? Just get rid of it. Get rid of it. So that got, that got canned immediately. Um, yeah. So, the, so yeah, she has very specific ideas about what she wants, Joy, and, and she doesn't want to compromise on them. I mean, there's lots of stories about her writing songs for Slim and Slim saying, I can't sing that. It's too many words or that melody's not right for me. And she's like, no, no. We're going to sit down and we're going to work through it. And this is the way you're going to sing the melody. You're not going to, you know, simplify it or flatten it out. And and the best example of that is uh, some biggest hit, Lights on the Hill, um, was a song that he just um, dismissed out of hand when she gave it to him initially and said, there's too many words in this song. I can't get my breath. I can't sing this rhythm. And she said, yes, you can, you know, just work on it. Just, just and, you know, the rest is history. That song is his his biggest hit and sort of the crowning jewel in their catalogue. The single was co-written with uh, with your grandma Joy and your wife Flora, but it also features Anne Kirkpatrick on vocals. Now, Anne, in her own right, is an ARIA Award winner and a country music star, but uh, she's also your mother. It is quite rare to have three generations of family on a track. Was that a special kind of experience for you? Yeah, absolutely. That was the idea behind the whole the whole single. I think was to get us all together on one track in some way, if we could. Uh, because this song, you know, sonically and melodically, it's not our usual wheelhouse for small town romance. But we wanted to do something that was in line with the, the tone of the film and that could get the whole family on board. And Mum has um, a voice that is very distinct, and for me, it's really her voice has aged incredibly well um, and she's got such a distinctive sort of timbre to her voice and such a lived-in quality that I love that she was the perfect perfect person to sing this song, really. So, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. She came down to Melbourne and we we tracked it and, yeah, and just, you know, just harmony singing with mum is something I love doing. It just feels very natural, you know, it comes easy. 
when you get together at a family event, do the guitars come out after a few glasses of wine or a few beers? Uh, yes and no. I think when I was growing up, because it was, I mean, these days, because we're not gigging as much, I think, yes, we definitely do like to get, get the guitars out and have a sing and work up some material or, and, and, and we have a lot of fun with that. I think when I was growing up, because music was work and, um, you know, you'd be playing a gig that night anyway, it was funny how social situations didn't have as much music around as you would think because it was just, it was work. So, you know, we've finished work, let's put the guitars away. But definitely in more recent years, in the last 10, 15 years, it's definitely come back and we have, you know, we have great time sort of just dusting off old bits and pieces from the family catalogue or just from, you know, old Australian country songs, things like that, that really, you know, are great to revisit together. You and your wife, Flora, make up the band Small Town Romance. How did the band come about? Was it that you were in a couple and then realised you could make it work as a band or was it more of a a band that then turned into a romantic partnership? Uh, We we were a couple first, although we met each other through going to gigs, going to each other's gigs. So I think I I first met Flora when I saw her playing in a folk duo and they were fantastic and I was quite taken with her. And um, and then she came and saw me play the next week and I was in like a, a terrible bluegrass duo, sort of, sort of trying to sound like the Leuven brothers but but failing miserably. And, um, yeah, and we, you know, uh, we had a sort of shared love of, of, you know, of songwriting and, and playing um, country and, and roots music. So, you know, um, but we were together for a couple of years and then our friend Gemma uh, just booked a gig and told us, start a band. This this is the first gig you've got. Just booked a gig for us. And so we had to find a band in like a week and come up with a repertoire. So thanks to Gemma Rollins because she actually forced us into starting a band. And then, yeah, and then look, to be honest, uh, we just had a lot of fun just being in a band, playing tunes around town in Melbourne because, you know, there's lots of great venues and places to play. So we had a great kind of couple of years just being a local sort of bar band and playing all our favourite music and a few originals. And then we put out a debut record in um, 2016 and then we kind of took it a bit more seriously for that for that couple of years after that. And, um, yeah, and we had some great results, you know. We got some Golden Guitar nominations and Music Victoria nominations. So we were really happy. Um, and then just around, you know, now that sort of we had a bit of time off because we had a baby and then also um, we made the film. So that took a couple of years and now we're sort of in the midst of recording a new record right now, which hopefully we'll have a single out by the end of the year. Oh, awesome. I was going to ask if there, there was a second record on the way. Oh, yeah, there's a second and a third that are written and ready to go. We're doing a lockdown acoustic record. So being locked down is um, we're about to go into the studio the weekend that lockdown happened to make our second record. And so we said, all right, well, we'll put those songs aside because they're our, that's our band record. That's like our Saturday night, Doug Psalm party record. And we'll do, and then because all we did during lockdown was listen to, you know, we would listen to like the most depressing music imaginable whilst in lockdown for some reason, we just gone back to like really um, grim acoustic music. But we kind of just got back to basics during lockdown because that's all we could do. Harmony singing, close harmony singing, really spare arrangements, taking songs we'd written and really melting them back to their essence. Um, and then we've recorded them at home, got a few other players overdubbing on them, but they're pretty spare arrangements. And we're super happy with how it's come up. It's like it's, we're just really think we've, um, 
it's it's kind of a beautiful um, document of us sort of getting back to basics. So that that's the first record that'll come out, and then next year we'll put out a a band record. We'll get back to you know our Saturday night sort of Lucinda Williams Doug Sam record. I, I did want to quickly touch on um, another one of your isolation projects, Trapped. Yes, the uh, Trapped. Bruce Springsteen podcast, oh, good. Trapped. Excellent. Yeah, I'm glad this is getting a plug. Yes, we need to. We, uh, <laughs> yes, like everyone locked down, we, we immediately uh, thought, well, everyone needs to hear our thoughts. And so, um, I mean, Flora and I would have sat on our porch and um, debated about Bruce Springsteen's discography anyway, but we decided, oh, we might as well record it. So Trapped is um, a Bruce Springsteen coronavirus chronicle, and it is us going uh, album by album through Bruce Springsteen's discography. So Bruce is kind of like, Bruce's discography, he's kind of like the the glue in our relationship, I guess. Um, the very first um, conversation we ever had was about Bruce Springsteen. That's when we hit it off. So you know, he's just a fundamental part of our lives, I guess. And so in times of, of, um, uh, of lockdown, everyone went down, we went back to their safe music. You know, I was hearing people talk about this, how they're looking at Spotify and what was, what was kind of, um, getting a lot of spins when the pandemic started. And it was all that classic sort of safe music of the past, you know, like your Neil Young's and your, you know, easy listening stuff. Everyone was going back to safe music. People weren't that interested in brand new music. So we were the same. We went back and started listening to some Bruce again. And uh, yeah, you know, it's it's a lot of fun just to, you know, debate. We've got lots of different opinions. It's a great catalogue. Bruce Springsteen's got such a far-ranging catalogue and more than any other uh, of his contemporaries, like Neil Young's or Bob Dylan's, it feels like he was making more consistently relevant music for a longer period like he stayed he stayed consistently quite popular and relevant in a way that maybe the others haven't i mean that's debatable but we th- we think so and so i'd agree with that yeah yeah i mean bob dylan still makes good records but i don't think he's thought of as as relevant you know whereas bruce, when bruce springsteen made the rising you know um after 9-11 that was an incredibly resonant record around the world um yeah so yeah, we, we've had a lot of fun. You know, we've we've done three episodes, we've recorded a fourth, and um, we're we're back into it. We had a bit of a hiatus uh, while we made our we made our acoustic record, and now we're we finished that, so we're back into the podcasting. So look it up on all your various wherever you find your podcasts. Trapped a coronavirus, Bruce Springsteen coronavirus chronicle. We will definitely give it a plug uh, at at the end of the show. For you, what is the ultimate Springsteen record? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah, this is why we did it because, yeah, the discography is quite, you know, I mean, he essentially rewrites the same three or four songs over and over and over again, which is great. Like, there's nothing wrong with doing that. Like, that's a great idea and that's just honing your craft. And, you know, once you've got, you know, when when you're drawing on those essential archetypes and and, and ideas that he is, you know, you can rewrite them and, and reinvent them um, throughout the course of a, you know, 50-year career. But for me... Probably it's the predictable answer that Born to Run is the one that I can go back to that gets me to a state of emotion um, more deeply um, than any other record. It's just the sense of wonder and and, and excitement of, of youth, but also tinged with the sadness of that the broken promise of being young and um, eventually sort of aging out. And, and then the next record, Darkness on the Edge of Town, is kind of like exploring that 
broken promise and that sort of becoming an adult and the compromises of adulthood sort of um, impinging on you. So it's it's that one two, the one two of Born to Run and Darkness on the Edge of Town, uh, probably the high point for me in his catalog. And but Born to Run edges out Darkness as number one. I think that's very fair. I think uh, f- for myself, Nebraska does take that uh, that number one spot, but I think Born to Run is a classic for a reason. It makes sense. Yeah, I think that Nebraska is definitely a gateway drug um, for Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I think a lot of singer songwriters, it's, it's their way in because the just the bombast of Bruce Springsteen and the sort of dad rock elements of it, they can kind of put people off initially. Um, but uh, Nebraska, because it's quite stark and has this sense of like authenticity and groundedness, it kind of draws you in into the Bruce sensibility in a way and then you can kind of access the rest of the catalogue after that. So uh, Nebraska definitely, yeah, it's it's an honourable mention for me, yeah. Are you happy to talk about your playlist? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Without saying that there would be at least one Slim Dusty song on the playlist. Now, Slim had over a hundred studio records and over a thousand songs. What was it about Indian Pacific that you thought, yep, this is the one for the playlist? Yeah, it's it's a tough one to pick one song out of, you know, over a thousand. I th- I think this song for me really distills the Slim and Joy partnership. So it's written by my grandmother Joy for Slim. And it, I think it's 1976 she writes this. So this is kind of the height of his his fame and his success. Um, and it's a song, it's a very simple conceit for a song. It's um, the train that runs from the east to the west of Australia, the Indian Pacific. It's basically a song um, telling the story of looking out the window as you cross the nation. So it's incredibly cinematic in its imagery and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's incredibly grandiose in its production too. It's got, you know, a ridiculous string section on it, which is like pretty, pretty over the top. It's got this great guitar lick in it. Um, it's, it's a lot of different elements. It's quite rocky. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole lot of elements that are coming together um, to create sort of something that's greater than some of its parts, I think, this song. It's, it's like a real widescreen cinematic song. Um, and it's just beautifully written and within the space of, you know, a couple of verses you're taken from one side of the country to the other and, you know, Joy does it effortlessly with the imagery. The imagery is just so rich and the turns of phrase are so so sort of, you know, the syllables are amazing. That's what we always say, good syllables. Song's got good syllables. Some of the other songs you picked on the playlist include Wilco and Marlon Williams, which I'd, I'd classify as more modern-day folk or, or Americana. Yeah. What is it about these acts that you love? Well, I think, um, I mean, starting with Wilco, I think Jeff Tweedy is someone that obviously is very aware of the rudiments of of uh, songwriting in its classic form, you know, what, what Woody Guthrie was doing, what folk singers were doing, what country singers were doing in their craft and he for me gets quite at a certain point gets quite experimental I guess he goes off on more an experimental avant-garde bent and his writing is quite uh abstract um and not as literal whereas you know country music and roots music tends to have quite a literal grounded feeling to it but Jeff Tweedy definitely works on a, on more of an emotive abstract level 
I think that um, sets him apart, but he tends to use instrumentation and melodies that are very evocative of old uh, Americana and classic um, classic American music, I guess. So, and, and I think he revels in that tension as well between those classic melodies and elements and more modern production. Um, and that tension is such a, a key, uh, key part of their music. And his voice has a fragility to it that kind of represents that tension that it's sort of barely holding together. Um, and that sense of sort of American identity that's kind of hanging by a thread, you know, um, sense of the old and the new sort of uh, being at odds. Um, I love that about his songwriting. Um, Barlin Williams is someone that was just captivating to watch. He turned up in Melbourne a few years back and just immediately run new, like, wow. And it only took about six months and he was gone out of the pubs and into stardom. He was just, you know, next level. Um, he could sing anything. He was in the classic mold of like an amazing singer that could sing anything, you know, Sinatra or Chris Isaac, all this stuff. Like he's, he can sing like that. Um, but what he does on his second record is he doesn't oversing anything and it's just like it's a masterclass in not getting carried away with, well, I can sing really loud and belt this, maybe I will. It's just it's, it's an absolute lesson in less is more and holding back and just using his, his, vo- his vocals so effectively. Uh, and then the, the, the production on it, again, he writes quite classic sounding songs and there's a very classic Roy Orbison sort of sound to his vocal drenched in reverb and that forlorn sort of delivery he has. But the production gives it a very sort of futuristic, that's a, ter- that's a pretty lame word. No one's used that word for a while, futuristic. Um, it's qu- but it does, it feels like it's almost like a retro, it's like the idea of the future in the 70s um, sound to that record that I just love. And I just think the simplicity of it and the, he didn't, he didn't overcook it, you know. So many people overcook their second record. He just got it right. He just got it just right. So I love, um, I love that record. It's a great record in in terms of, well, as you said, it, it's a lesson in restraint in exactly in doing things well. Yeah, yeah, totally. The last song I wanted to discuss today was High Open Hills, which is a beautiful track from Melbourne artist Liz Stringer. What is it about this song that connects to you? Uh, Liz is just you know um, has a sort of conviction that you hope hope for. In a, in a singer-songwriter, in an artist in general. She just uh, is a hundred million percent conviction in whatever she does and it's incredibly moving to watch her play, whether it be in the corner of a pub or a port ferry in front of 2,000 people. She just she's just got that ability to connect emotionally and this song is just, it's a real weeper, but um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful song. And Liz is just reminds me as well of a time when I first moved to Melbourne and just discovered a whole lot of singer-songwriters that I didn't know existed that were kind of more local Victorian songwriters at the time that are all just blew me away with how good they were. Um, Van Walker, Chris Altman, uh, you know, the list goes on. There's so many of them. Um, you know, Geordie Lane, um, so many great songwriters and she was part of that sort of group and she's continued to just power and um, she's got a huge voice Um and yeah, she just again, she just gets me to a state of emotion, you know, in, a, in within a, a chorus that n- not many singers can do, you know. So I, I continue to spin those records. I think it's a sign of a good songwriter when you can kind of, even within just the course of a, a chorus or a verse, just make someone feel something within that short space. It yeah, 
that's the that, that's the job description, you know. Yeah. <laughs> James, look, thank you very much uh, for your time today. I do really appreciate it. Thank, thanks for having me, Simon. Cheers. So that's our show. Thank you to James Arneman and Small Town Romance for joining us on the show. Slim and I is out now at cinemas around the country and you can find the soundtrack streaming on all major music platforms. James and Flora's podcast, Trapped, the Bruce Springsteen Coronavirus Chronicles, is available wherever you get your pods. So don't forget to subscribe to their show. Speaking of subscribing, if you like this show, please do so wherever you get your pods and stay up to date when new episodes are released. We release new shows each Thursday morning with guest playlists streaming on Spotify at the same time. Once you've finished listening to this episode, head over to Spotify to listen to some of the songs that James has picked. Follow the playlist profile on Spotify and you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, cheers. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.